safer sex. Intercourse. Condoms. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. HIV. Sexual health. Treatment. Prevention. Sexual attraction. Sexually transmitted infection. specialist. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Tom and you're listening to the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast where we talk about all things related to sexual health. This podcast is being released on World AIDS Day 2021. The topic for today is HIV-related stigma. To discuss the research, I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Brody. The issue though there is that that really places the responsibility on the person living with HIV rather than, rather than on the individuals or the systems that allow stigma to exist. Dr. Brody is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Social Research and Health at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, whose work focuses on stigma and its effects. I'll then be speaking with Freddie Cole to discuss his lived experience. Sure, if we went like this, clicked our fingers and ended the disease itself, the social ramifications and echoes would remain. But first up is Dr. Brody. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and your research area? Yeah, sure. Um, So I've been at the the Centre for Social Research and Health for about four years now, um, and I'm involved in a range of social research and uh, different projects there, uh, predominantly related to bloodborne viruses and STIs. My work uh, in my work, I basically look at social relationships and situations that impact the lived experiences of affected communities. With the end goal basically being to look at improving health outcomes, quality of life, and addressing social inequalities. All right, great. And to kick us off, uh, what is stigma, and what led you to want to do research in this area? Sure. Um, so, when you say stigma, um, you know you mentioned that word. I think most people probably have a preconceived idea of what you're talking about. Um, and generally, I'd say that those preconceived notions are pretty accurate. What, I, what I've what i learned over the last few years in particular is that the more you study stigma and the more you come to understand it, the more you realise how complex it really is. You know, most definitions refer to things, things like having a, a discrediting attribute or a spoiled identity and things like that. There are issues of social processes of exclusion. So being seen as an outgroup or an outcast to the mainstream society. And the literature often talks about uh, how there are uh, different, picking up on differences between people, labeling those differences and associating negative attitudes and negative behaviors with those differences. Uh, so the people who are seen to be different get separated and distanced from the, the rest of society, um, which brings in issues around power and control. We also talk about stigma in, in a lot of different ways, things like internalized stigma, where people take on those negative views themselves and it starts to affect their, their own views of themselves. Um, and also interpersonal stigma, where discrimination and those stigmatizing attitudes can play out in relationships and interactions between people. And it goes right through to issues of structural stigma, where public policies and laws can enact those um, issues of discrimination at that broader level. So in terms of why I wanted to work in the area, um, I think it's it's fair to say that any researcher wants their work to make a difference. And as much as you know, I enjoy just research for the sake of research, the whole process of designing projects and collecting data, analyzing the data. Um, for me, the thing that really that really motivates me to go to work on a Monday morning is the idea that the work I do 
Um, and you know what I do Monday to Friday can actually contribute to making a difference um, to the real lives of people out there in the community. And you know, particularly stigma, you know, it's such a, a ubiquitous issue, and it's so easy to see how damaging it can be for people who are affected, whether it's the individual or the community level. And while our work focuses around bloodborne viruses and STIs, it can also apply to a much broader range of stigmatized identities and stigmatized groups, you know, race, religion, gender, other medical conditions, disability, but you know, the list goes on. And so while, you know, we don't claim that we can solve all the world's problems, to be able to, you know, get a little bit more of an insight into all of these things that are going on and how we can um, make recommendations and contribute to making people's real lives better. Um, you know, that's the, the real motivation for the, the work that we do. So you work on the Stigma Indicators Monitoring Project. Stigma seems like something that can be quite subtle or subjective sometimes. Uh, how is this operationalized and measured? Yeah, that, that's very true. Um, as, as I was talking about, it's a very complex um, phenomenon, this whole idea of stigma and how it can play out in different contexts. Um, so our work on the, the Stigma Indicators Project, as the name suggests, is based around just this, a single indicator of stigma. Um, so for anyone who's not familiar with, with this work, um, the project was um, essentially based on um, the Australian Bloodborne Virus and STI strategies, which all have a goal around reducing the negative effects of stigma. Um, and many of the health departments uh, for various states across the country are also moving that way to um, specifically address stigma. Um, and so while we acknowledge that there's a lot of complexity and a lot of nuance associated with stigma in various populations and in various contexts, in order to be able to track progress against these sorts of strategies, um, our team develops this single survey item, just gets straight to the point and asks how often you've experienced stigma or discrimination within the last 12 months. So it's just a single question, straight to the point. Um, and like you said, it can be a very subjective experience. So you know, we see that it's really important to ask people just straight up, based on their own experience, reflect on your own life and how often have you felt stigmatized. Um, alongside that, we also routinely ask, uh, particularly in surveys of the general public or with healthcare workers, how likely people would be to enact stigma or to behave negatively towards people based on various infections, behaviours or identities. Um, and it's really interesting to look at those results side by side, you know, Generally speaking, we're more likely to see that um, the people are going to report that they've experienced stigma than we are to hear that people report that they would behave negatively towards other people. Um, the, the clearest example from our, our recent work is around uh, men who have sex with men, where our most recent uh, data said, suggests that around three quarters have experienced stigma within the last 12 months. But at the same time, when we surveyed the general public, we're looking between 15 and 20% who say they would behave negatively towards people on the basis of sexuality. So there's obviously a, a big disconnect there. Um, and we're also more likely to hear people say that they've witnessed other people behave negatively than to say that they would behave negatively themselves. Um, and obviously there are issues of social desirability, responses in the surveys and, um, and, and things like that. Um, but it also, um, it also raises questions about perceptions of other people's behaviour versus perceptions of your own behaviour and also how other people might interpret your behaviour. And so that's why in this project, it's really important for us to um, collect that data from a range of different perspectives to really provide that fuller picture of what's going on and how stigma is um, 
yeah, is experienced by people and also how it's enacted by various groups. Um, and yeah, due to the complexity of, of what can happen in terms of a stigmatizing experience, um, in the surveys we run, we also include more detailed measures where we can ask a bit more about the nuance. Um, and what we tend to find is that um, those detailed questionnaires um, and the really nuanced stuff does line up very well with our broad measure. So we do see consistent messaging, um, which we can then you know, feedback into um, yeah, health departments for their strategic planning um, and really inform yeah, yeah, work on the ground, um, including in healthcare settings um, and other community groups. You mentioned that you get a range of different perspectives from different communities. Do you see differences between various populations in Australia? And are there any generational differences? Yeah, look, I think it's safe to say that um, stigma um, in any form, and, you know, we're specifically talking about HIV stigma today, but, um, yeah, it affects each person, each individual in a very different way. Um, you know, th- that subjective experience means that th- there can be any number of factors that really play into how people um, experience stigma and also how it affects them personally. Um, you know, we do know that social support is a huge benefit in terms of mitigating the negative effects of stigma. Um, And we've also seen in some of our work that identifying with being HIV positive can have some positive effects. So where you really take on the the identity of being a person living with HIV, uh, that can really buffer some of the negative effects of experiencing stigma. Um, On the flip side, uh, experiences of layered stigma, so where people feel stigmatized or discriminated against because of a range of different issues, um, that can compound the the negative outcomes. So, you know, for people living with HIV who may feel stigmatized because of their HIV status, but then also because they inject drugs or because of their race or their gender or their socioeconomic status or whatever else it might be, as those compound, um, that can really, um, yeah, really exacerbate those issues. I think that the generational issue you raised is a very interesting one. Um, and there definitely seems to be a bit of a residual effect of things like the Grim Reaper campaign of the 1980s. You know, we've had participants in our studies who still reflect on how, you know, the lingering effects of that live with them to this day. You know, it seems like it was such a long time ago, the 1980s, but it was, yeah, such a negative experience for some people that it still affects them now. Um, and, also then looking at people, you know, members of the general public who were around in the 1980s and witnessed that campaign, if they then haven't been exposed to new information around modern treatments or biomedical prevention strategies, um, you know, they've had nothing to counteract those arguments that they heard back in 1987 or whenever it might have been. Um, and so if those, if those views haven't been challenged, then it's likely that that's going to live on in people who don't have huge amounts of contact with the HIV, um, the HIV space. It, yeah, in, interestingly, some of our recent work with the Australian public showed that um, people with less stigmatising attitudes towards people living with HIV tended to be those who were younger, born in Australia and have higher incomes. Um, but also the strongest predictors that we found in our work were the people who held the less stigmatizing attitudes were people who personally knew someone living with HIV. So again, that idea of having contact with somebody and also being less politically conservative. So we're particularly interested in that side of things uh, and continuing the work around conservatism, uh, particularly how that relates to uh, stigma reduction interventions and whether 
you know, interventions need to be tailored according to those sorts of variables. That's really interesting that people's views differ uh, depending on their political orientation. Uh, but how about settings? Do people experience stigma more from the general public or does more work need to be done in healthcare settings and business settings? Yeah, look, um, it can be anywhere. Um, and I think it's difficult to say where it's more or less prevalent. Um, you know, in, in our work, you know, basically the take-home message is we see stigma everywhere. Um, you know, things may shift slightly over time, but essentially it still exists Um and when it exists within society, it's going to exist within any kind of context within society. Um, and yeah, even in healthcare, I think that's, that is an important area that we focus on, not because we necessarily think stigma is worse there or, um, or anything like that. Um, but, you know, healthcare is one of those sectors where there's an ethos of providing non-judgmental care and, you know, equal, equal services and support to anybody, but stigma can still exist in that place. And there are obviously important implications for people who experience stigma or feel stigmatized within a healthcare setting and what that means for them accessing future care. Um, you know, it, it's certainly not necessarily a conscious thing. Things like unconscious bias can come into play and those structural issues that I mentioned before can also play a big part on uh, that subjective experience of a person living with HIV coming through the front door of any particular health service. So if somebody has had a negative experience in a healthcare setting, so it could be you know somewhere that they're going to or somewhere that they've been to previously, uh, what sort of effect might that have on their future health-seeking behaviour or even uh, somebody who might be getting a HIV test for the first time? Yeah, well, expecting stigma is a huge barrier um, to accessing any healthcare and, yeah, even that initial healthcare, that yeah, initial test, like you suggested, you know, when people expect that, oh, there's stigma around HIV. Well, I just don't want to get tested. I don't even want to know about it because I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that judgment. Um, and I mean, it makes sense. You know, if you think a health service is going to judge you or discriminate against you, or, you know, if you think you're, um, your friends and family are going to judge you because you find out you're HIV positive, then you're not going to be inclined to go and make an appointment to make that happen. You know, people are not going to willingly put themselves in that kind of situation. And, you know, that can also translate across different health services as well. You know, obviously, when you have that one experience, negative experience with a particular healthcare provider, that's going to make you reluctant to go back to that same place. But the thing about stigma is that, it, you know, it can be so pervasive and in its various forms, it can then make people reluctant to go to other services as well. So, you know, you've seen one GP who um, treated you terribly, you felt absolutely judged, and that puts you off wanting to go and see the next GP or even um, a sexual health service. Or, you know, it, it can broaden out to those other services as well. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that healthcare providers can face. That even if, if you yourself are incredibly welcoming and not judgmental um, and, you know, absolute top level care and your service as a whole is uh, not judgmental and very welcoming of all clients. The fact that they may have experienced stigma in other settings can impact their willingness to come through your door, um, and it can also impact how they interpret their experience once they're there as well. So there are all of those issues that come into it. It's not just a case of, well, I'm okay, I provide you know, wonderful care for everybody. Those previous experiences can impact on people in ways that you're just not aware of. Mm-hmm. So uh, what sort of interventions can help reduce stigma? So someone might have had a negative experience elsewhere. Uh, how can we make our services more welcoming when they come to see us? 
Or what interventions help to reduce stigma in society more broadly? Yeah, well, there um, there've been a range of different approaches um, that have been tried over recent years, um, and generally they tend to focus on the individual level. So, how can we impact people individually? How can we change negative attitudes, or how can we support people experiencing stigma? So, you know, one thing that we'll need to be focused on moving forward is also those broader structural levels of stigma. How can we intervene to um, ensure that policies and procedures that are in place don't allow for stigma to occur in the first place. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the stuff that's been tried and um, what's what the evidence says, um, you know, most things show at least some kind of benefit, at least within the short term. You know, sometimes the focus is on empowering people living with HIV to, you know, quote unquote, cope better when they experience stigma. Um, and, you know, that that's all well and good. And there have been some positive outcomes from that. Um, the issue, though, there is that that really places the responsibility on the person living with HIV rather than rather than on the individuals or the systems that allow stigma to exist in the, in the first place. So obviously, things need to be need to be looked at more broadly than that. Um, commonly, people look at educational type approaches where um, learning more about HIV can help to dispel some of the myths and the untruths around HIV, um, and with the idea that that will hopefully improve attitudes. We've recently run a project uh, with the general public based on that idea of contact that I was talking about earlier, um, just a brief online intervention where uh, people were shown a video of a couple of minutes length, people living with HIV talking about their lived experience. Um, and we found that even that short video was enough to to start to shift some of the short-term negative attitudes that uh, members of the general public held. And even after three months, we could still see some positive effects of that Following up from that, we've uh, run an intervention project with healthcare workers uh, based on uh, social norms theory. So just to briefly outline that, essentially the idea was based on on research that says uh, people tend to think that their colleagues hold more negative attitudes towards people living with HIV than they personally do, but then behave in a way that means they're going to fit in with the social group. So even though I'm quite supportive, I'm very supportive of people living with HIV, I know my colleagues aren't quite as supportive, so I'm not, you know, I'm going to behave in a way that's going to help me to fit in with them. Um, but the flip side of that is their colleagues most likely think the same thing. So everybody thinks they hold these really positive attitudes and everyone else holds negative attitudes, where in reality, everyone holds the same positive attitudes. So we put together some, um, some information around that, presented a short video to dispel um, some of those um, misjudgments, I suppose. Um, and again, in the short term, saw that just a, a brief intervention to educate people around those social norms and what their colleagues most likely do think was able to shift some of the more positively shift attitudes towards people living with HIV. So the one thing that's missing in a lot of the intervention work is how effective things are in the long term. Yeah, some of our work, we've been able to see uh, some of the positive effects remain after three months or so, but you know, what happens 12 months down the track? What happens five years down the track? Um, and realistically, there's going to be a need for continued investment in a range of different ways to ensure that, um, yeah, stigma isn't allowed to perpetuate and that, you know, it's continually addressed in a real and meaningful way. Are there any stories of individual people you'd like to share but you've come across in your research? Oh, th- there are lots of stories. Um, and I think, look, the, probably the best way to to sum up the most important stories that I've heard is that, you know, we hear time and time again that people really notice the subtle things. 
um, things like the sideways glance or the slight hesitation before shaking somebody's hand or even the tone of voice from the receptionist at a health health service. Um, you know, it might not be intended as anything derogatory towards a particular client. Um, it may not legitimately reflect any kind of negative attitude. Um, you know, you might have a there might be a tone in your voice because you've had a bad day at home in the morning. But people who experience stigma, they pick up on absolutely everything. And when stigma becomes internalized, then even those little triggers can be enough to make them feel that they are being stigmatized again um, within a particular context. And it's so important to to consider things from that perspective. Um, and just yeah, to realize that even with the best intentions, things can still trigger a stigmatizing experience for people in ways that um, that you don't necessarily realize. Okay, great. So just thinking about gay men or men who have sex with men, uh, PrEP has been such a game changer for HIV prevention in the community. Uh, has this also had an effect on stigma? Absolutely, I, I think it has. Um, you know, in many cases, um, understanding PrEP um, and how effective it is in preventing HIV, HIV transmission has really changed the way that people can have viewed um, HIV to the extent that HIV status may be seen as essentially irrelevant. You know, if um, men are out there looking for um, a, a new sex partner, you know, they're not going to necessarily reject someone living with HIV as a partner on the basis of th their status because, you know, PrEP means that there's full protection um, and so they can view HIV negative, HIV positive men in exactly the same way. So in that context, you know, the stigma around HIV um, has certainly been um, has certainly been impacted in that way. I mean, the flip side of it, and, you know, this again talks to the complexity um, and, the, um, you know, just the difficulty that stigma creates, PrEP itself, you know, may also create stigma in certain contexts, um, you know, important to mention in certain contexts. But, um, you know, for some people, being on PrEP might be viewed as um, meaning that someone is particularly promiscuous or irresponsible in their sex lives because of the freedom that it now allows. Um, so it's that, that complexity of stigma where something like PrEP, which undeniably has had an incredibly positive impact in the HIV response. You know, it has been that game changer that, that you mentioned. Um, but even that something so beneficial can create stigma um, in certain contexts, it just highlights the difficulty that we face in terms of working with stigma, that people will, um, stigma will be attached to, it could be absolutely anything. While, it, you know, it might help to reduce some of the stigma attached to HIV, it may then increase stigma attached to certain sexual behaviour that people don't necessarily agree with. So it's that repeated complexity that, you know, stigma needs to be addressed from all different angles um, to really make a meaningful difference in the world. So, yeah, as much as PrEP has been absolutely fantastic, you know, we can't just assume that it's all well and good and that everyone's going to get on board with it because there are other certain issues. And, you know, there may be more that I, you know, I've just given one example here today, but there may be other issues associated with it as well that we need to consider in, in terms of the, the response to stigma, um, particularly in those sorts of contexts. So uh, it's been really fascinating hearing more about the research around stigma. So thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Dr. Brody. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. My next guest is Freddie Cole to talk about his lived experience of stigma as somebody who lives with HIV. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Freddie. 
Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a positive speaker for the Positive Speakers Bureau of Positive Life New South Wales, which is an organisation that advocates on behalf of people living with HIV, our friends and family, our allies, etc. I became a speaker a couple of years into my HIV, my personal HIV journey. The thing is, being a 46-year-old gay man, HIV has sort of been part of the landscape of my life from the time I, certainly from the time I came out, and indeed before then even. Um, yeah, so I lived in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales, where I was born. My father was a dairy farmer. His family have farmed a small village of five families for generations. We are three of those families. And so I kind of came from a very, very small place. I moved to Sydney and then on to the world to sort of find myself. And five years ago, I made the decision to move home. I've just been speaking to Dr. Timothy Brody about how stigma impacts people more broadly. How has stigma impacted your life? Well, as I kind of sort of mentioned before, HIV was part of my life from the beginning of me becoming me. I think to describe that as HIV is a bit of a misnomer. It's really the stigma of HIV. With those very early commercials that were screened in Australia, they were very effective. They managed to, you know, draw attention to where help was needed most. The problem with it is it did it using fear. So I know that from sort of the earliest consciousness of myself being gay, with that was coupled quite closely the notion of HIV. And indeed, when it came time for me to, like, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, for me to let my mother know She's not quite that long. I'm not that old. <laughs> um, let my mother know that I was HIV positive. I was very, very conscious of the fact that I was delivering to her door the thing that she probably had feared most when I came out as gay. And indeed, you know, some of the negativity around me being gay was driven by HIV-related stigma. And that stigma was not just driven... Sure, it was... It was planted in my mind from an external point, but the cogs of one's mind spin round and round and round. And I think of all of the stigma that I've faced around my HIV, it is, it is the, the job I've done on myself that is probably the most complete and, and the most damaging, probably. And what about from other people? Have you ever experienced stigma in a healthcare setting? I'm sure I probably have. But the thing about it is I'm quite lucky with the fact that HIV was so closely tied to the notion of being gay. It meant living in you know, the inner eastern suburbs of Sydney. I was in a village of people who had been deeply affected by HIV for so long that every conceivable service and um, support was available to me. And so when I was first diagnosed, navigating those spaces um, was made easy. I'm sure it would be a very different thing if I was a straight man or a straight woman or somebody who didn't fit so easily into those, those very hard and fast stereotypes, which, which exist to this day. The fact that, you know, I'm, you know, consistently asked questions around sort of World AIDS Day about what people can do to be better allies to the, 
to the LGBTQ community. And so this isn't a gay issue. For me, that was where I first dealt with healthcare. That's where my expectations about how I would be treated began. And I probably have taken those expectations. And by the time I had to interact with, with health services beyond that bubble, I was already quite confident in demanding what it was that I expected. You know, I, I can speak. I can speak because I'm a gay man. So it's no big deal that I have HIV within my community. I can speak because I don't have children. The impact of people knowing my status could lead to my children being bullied or teased or whatever. I have a family who is just by the fact I wore them down over many, many years, forced to be quite supportive and, and they have my back. I have a job which isn't in jeopardy because of my status. So I am able to kind of push the boundaries in a way that a lot of people probably aren't able to. And I mean, I, I look back on very, very early days of my diagnosis and I stigma and stigma and fear are tightly, tightly woven. I remember I used to go to a to an Orthodox Jewish dentist in Double Bay. And I'd gone to him for years and he was a great guy, did great work. I was very, very happy. But then when I was diagnosed, it was just the thought of having one, one, did I have to have the conversation? Even if I didn't have to have the conversation, was it the morally responsible thing to have the conversation? And then on top of that, there was just the embarrassment at having to have that conversation. And it is, it is those conversations that you're that you're afraid to have. Like it, it's funny, just things occurs to me. I had a car accident many, many, many moons ago in Birmingham, Alabama, of all places. And my HIV positive partner was quite badly injured in the car wreck. And I remember being on that gurney in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And I was, I was lucid. I had a broken collarbone, but that was about the extent of my injuries. And I remember being in that ambulance thinking, okay, he's knocked out cold. Do I have a responsibility to tell the hospital about his status? If I do tell them about his status, is that going to compromise the care that he receives? And given the degree of his injuries, will that have an ongoing effect of him maybe never walking again, this, that, or the other, who knows? And I think it is that interesting thing of, even if it isn't a confrontational moment, that doesn't mean that you're not dealing with stigma in those circumstances. You're navigating a path to make sure that your needs are met in a way that isn't emotionally destructive, isn't physically destructive, and which spares you the indignity of somebody calling out your status in a way that creates shame. <laughs> so there have been some big changes in recent years. So undetectable equals un untransmissible, you equals you. Uh, is, of course, some great news, uh, both for people living with HIV and for HIV prevention. Uh, what has this meant for you personally and the messaging around stigma? Yeah, so with U equals U, there's a couple of things that I, I do struggle with. Not everybody will be able to achieve um, an undetectable viral load. Small group, but still I think it's worthy of noting the fact that um, it, it does risk creating a stigma for those people who can't achieve it. Um, with the whole notion of treatment as prevention, it is a lovely notion that I am able to actively take steps that, that minimize the chance of me passing on HIV to someone else. I remember when I was 
when I was negative and I was dating people, I always perceived that that choice was mine because I was the one that was at risk. But it wasn't until after I seroconverted that I became aware of the mental anguish that goes into being with somebody when you're positive and the potential risk to somebody that you love through, you know, the act of loving them. It's, you know, it, it's a mental cartwheel that I, I certainly didn't give my positive partners credit for when I was negative. And I am very conscious that, you know, I considered it my choice when I was negative and I still defend that choice now probably more vigorously than I would have tolerated from my partners when I was negative. It's a powerful shift. Like people still carry on about cure, but as far as practical cures are concerned, this is a powerful time. As long as people are engaged with the message, and I think that's one of the important things around you equals you for some people. I mean, I struggle with it and I work in the space. So like just those words which are which don't necessarily roll off the tongue graphically, very, very powerful message when it comes to to speaking and speaking at speed as I do, or for somebody who's maybe not um, you know, English is not their first language. Um, they're words which are potential barriers to understanding of the message, I think. But it's just about making sure that there's you work around those issues. Yeah, to, to live in a time where if you are, you know, if you do all the right things and something goes wrong, you can turn to PEP. If you are taking proactive steps where both sides are able to be in control now, um, if you decide that it suits your lifestyle and you decide to go down the road of taking PrEP, then once again, it's a proactive step that you can take. And if everybody is on board with the messaging, if everybody understands the function of, of these various treatment protocols and how to incorporate them into their lives, you know, the goal of, of ending AIDS is closer than it has ever been before. And it is in a way... I like this solution more than I like the the magic wand attitude that many people bring to the notion of cure because my issue with the wave the magic wand and AIDS is gone it will never erase the loss of individuals the destruction that it that it wreaked on a community um the the battles that we've had with stigma and people's judgment like none of that goes away. The notion, sure, if we went like this, clicked our fingers and ended the disease itself, the social ramifications and echoes would remain. This prep, PEP, um, U equals U, it all offers us the potential for this disease to over time, as so many other plagues have vanished, for it to vanish, but it's not it doesn't burden the community with that expectation that instantaneously they'll be fine and the pain will be erased. You're a member of the Positive Speakers Bureau who uh, work to reduce stigma by sharing stories. So thank you for sharing your story today. Uh, How did you get involved with the Bureau and uh, what do you get out of it? Things I enjoy about it are that the really nice thing about somebody asking you a question is that it joins dots. You know, as you as you get to answering the question, it joins dots in your head often that you'd never joined before, like with that story I told before about the car accident. And many, many times on stage, 
I have learnt much more about myself than I probably <laughs> informed the crowd that had gathered to hear me speak. <laughs> it's also the times that are particularly valuable to me are the times where, you know, I'm able to introduce myself as, as almost the caricature or the stereotype of what somebody living with HIV looks like and be able to defer to somebody who is, whose experience is very, very different to mine and is probably a road far less traveled than mine, but is much more informative from the point of view that it reveals the simple truth that HIV is not necessarily about people like me. It's a human condition that can affect anyone. And when you are able to be on stage with somebody who is dramatically different to yourself and touch on points of that journey and flick between one and the other, you're able to really powerfully reveal the fact that and be anybody. It could be anyone in the audience that finds themselves in a circumstance that we on stage are in. And I think that anybody who, who believes otherwise of themselves is probably blind to the time they had too much to drink or blind to the time that they just didn't think. The great thing about it is no, no human experience stands on its own. There's elements of, of other experiences that you take to things. And I think, I mean, I work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And I think it's, it's that thing of, I don't have to have lived the experience of the exact experience of somebody else to be able to understand the gravitas of that experience. I don't need to have, you know, experienced that exact kind of hurtful situation to be able to appreciate the hurt. And one thing that I think as, you know, sort of we move towards a time where, well, as we move, you know, HIV is less and less and less of an issue, I guess some people would like to anecdotally report. But I believe one of the strengths of, of some of the better speakers in any field is the ability to leverage their experience to share a story in a way that the other person was not expecting. And so there are many stories that we are able to tell around domestic violence, around, um, you know, racism, so many things. And we are able, it's almost like speaking about our HIV as the Trojan horse that gets us through the door. And then we tell a much more complex story that speaks to resilience and speaks to community. You spoke there about how HIV can affect people from all walks of life um, and different communities. So what what more can be done to reduce HIV stigma, uh, not just amongst gay men, but uh, more broadly? Yeah, I think I guess the biggest thing is with the effect of, with the you know the increase in the effectiveness of treatment, with that increasing perception that HIV isn't a problem anymore. People's immediate thought as to the gravitas of that diagnosis are, you know, it's not perceived as a big deal. And anybody who thinks it's not a big deal will think that right up until the moment they're diagnosed. <laughs> um, it's, it is important, I think, that one of the reasons why, you know, we are still out there speaking is it is a problem and it's a problem in communities that don't consider it to be a problem for them. And 
that I think has become less and less with time. I think there is a much greater understanding of the fact that it is a human condition and not not a condition for the you know the big three that we were told it was from early on. That is a reassuring thing. It's interesting. I'm in the US with work at the moment. And one thing that I have been quite conscious of is the pervasiveness of advertising for prep. Um, At the moment, I'm in Palm Beach, Florida. Palm Beach County has, well, Florida as a whole, I believe, is like the the capital for, for diagnosis. So I think because of that fact that it is so prevalent beyond the small communities, the advertising has become much more mainstream. And with that increases awareness that it becomes an issue for everybody. And, you know, obviously it would be a much better way of going about this is to make sure that it never gets to that point. But in this circumstance, this is where they're at. I think the thing about home is because our numbers are much smaller, it's it's not perceived to be running rampant in the same way as I'm sure it is not just where I'm sitting now, but in many other communities, there's not the need for it to be a sort of a mass marketed notion. What can we do to reduce general stigma? It's about, you know, the more and more and more you get to a point that people understand something is potentially about them and not just about somebody else then that's where that equalization happens and that's where people begin to recognize the fact that you know that stigma is misplaced this has been the sydney sexual health center podcast for world aids day 2021 to stay up to date with the latest information in sexual health you can follow us on facebook twitter and linkedin if you like the podcast don't forget to share and subscribe